the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax, but buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old north state. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. Brooke and Ray here. We are going to discuss the future of travel. Elections in crisis, not just uh, nationally, but we're hearing some rumblings in North Carolina. Has the governorship been stolen? North Carolina embraces a conservative agenda. We're going to discuss an article I wrote uh, this week and your COVID and our COVID Thanksgiving plans. Brooke, how's it going? It's going great. I am doing well. I just actually had a big pile of my kids' Halloween candy because they're not home right now. So I am thoroughly sugared up and ready to talk. I want to give Brooke a compliment because she, I was just going to be very dour and pessimistic and cranky for this episode, but Brooke (laughs) suggested we kick it off with some good news. So for those that like good news and for those that like, you know, something positive in their life, you can thank Brooke. uh, Weirdos. I know. I'm part of that weird club that actually likes happy stuff, (laughs) (laughs) which is why I sugared up first. It's kind of like... It's not an appropriate time of day to have a glass of wine or anything, but it's always an appropriate time of day to have a little fun size bag of Skittles. So that's what I know. You know what? I know Skittles are for like little kids, but they're so good. Oh my gosh. Yes. Except, except let's just settle this. I do not like how they changed the green ones from lime to apple. Okay, I'm not such a candy holic that I noticed that. But. Oh my gosh! Okay, well, but that's, I do like, that's I like the tropical. Problem. I like the tropical ones. What do you think of the tropical Skittles? I do not like those. What? I do not. Aren't you? Don't you have like island blood in you? How could you? I do. Not like and you know what, Ray? That is a that is a prejudiced remark against Pacific Islanders that we would all <laughs> suddenly like. Tropical well, I lived, in, I lived in Hawaii and I love tropical Skittles. Did all the Hawaiians like tropical Skittles? Right? I have no idea. Probably. <laughs> they, probably like the, they probably like the normal Skittles. They probably did. Yeah. That's what, that's what the Hawaiian and me likes. So. <laughs> Anyways, no, but let's get to this good news. I thought this was exciting um, because, okay, yes, we all know that The elections right now feel like they're still just hanging in the balance in so many ways. Um, There are a lot of uh, back and forths going on on either side about the whether or not to call Biden the president-elect right now as this works its way through the courts. We have the electors that are going to be casting their votes come December 14th, I think. And so anyways, I don't foresee any of this dying down quite yet. So figured we'd focus on something good, which is that uh, Virgin... Airlines, which is also uh, developing a Hyperloop track, just completed their first successful test run. And if you're like Ray, who asked, what's a Hyperloop? Uh, I'm glad you asked. And that is because I didn't know what a Hyperloop was for a long time. And then a friend told me about it and I am sold on it. And basically, it's just like an electromagnetic tube, Ray. And you just like get in this little pod and you can go up to 670 miles an hour. So it's faster than even jet travel. Do you feel like it would feel like you're going really fast or would it feel really stable and like you're just kind of coasting at a normal speed? Yeah, well, because 
I, I don't know too much about the engineering behind this. I know it's electromagnetic and I'm looking at these photos and it looks like a very narrow tube, kind of like those banker's tubes where you, you know, put in your deposit and it sucks up into that, into that tube and goes into the bank. It looks like that, but laying uh, horizontally. And it can, uh, so essentially what this Hyperloop says is that it allows us to reimagine urban areas or what this article says, it allows us to reimagine urban areas and connectivity between urban areas. So for example, someone would be able to travel from Washington DC to New York City in 30 minutes on a Hyperloop. Why would you want to go to Washington DC? Well, yeah, of course. That's a good (laughs) question. So let's think Miami to Orlando. (laughs) something yeah yeah i wonder if this is a way to actually get rid of the conservatives (laughs) is this the cancel culture solution to like they they put you in these pods and they just like kind of like put you out under the ocean and you don't ever return you just disappear (laughs) oh wow right we don't need another conspiracy theory in this world so you just cut that out right now No, but, but it's, I just it's very innovative if that's the if that's the kind of the cancel culture solution. <laughs> I guess so. That's a creative destruction gone awry. But um, yeah. So, it, but it's emission free. It's very obviously lightning quick. It's silent, so it's not loud at all. And the passengers would travel in tiny pods. So, is this a realistic thing in the future? I don't know what the costs associated with it are, but I know Virgin's been working on it, and uh, Tesla has been working on hyperloops. And so, if it can happen in the private sector and not, you know, not have to commit taxpayer dollars to it, I think it will be really interesting to see how this goes. But have you ever had like any crazy forms of travel? You've lived all over the world. I mean, have you ever traveled by something strange? I'm sure not hyperloop, but. Well, I've done canoeing, so I've traveled. I've done a couple fifty miler trips on in the canoe. Although that was recreation, so it wasn't you know a utility to getting from point A to point B, so to speak. Uh, of course, traveled by camel a little bit in Egypt. Oh, fun! Um, and camels are not super friendly. It's not like the cuddly little animal that you want to squeeze and hold. I once had a camel in Egypt that burped in my face. <laughs> That was the most unpleasant experience I think I've ever had in my life, besides uh, one medical procedure I won't mention on here. But um, it was so gross that the the way, because they regurgitate their food. Ew. Yeah. And their breath is so rancid. Like literally, it happened what? How would I now? 41. It happened, gosh. Uh, 28 years ago, and I feel like I can still smell it to this day. It was just that so rancid and gross. And I don't know how we got off on that, but yeah, uh, exotic forms of travel. Um, did a Greek Isle cruise when we did live in Egypt too, as well as a family. And it was the one time in my life that I got seasick, and um, I blame that on some of the tourists that were throwing up around me. But the the water was so choppy. Uh, it was the one time in my entire life that I got seasick, and it, it was a little rough. Ooh, yeah, that I hate being seasick. I love traveling on water by water, but mm. there are times. I mean, well, so our family has gone on a number of cruises. It's one of our preferred ways to vacation because you can get like incredible deals on cruises. Uh, people probably think it's way more expensive than it actually is. It's quite affordable, and um, Carnival is so, like nine dollars. 
Okay, not not nine dollars. <laughs> but if you if you can get a cruise for like fifty dollars a day a person, that's really good because that includes your lodging, all your food, your activities, things like that. Um. So, anyways, we tend to go on in hurricane season because the tickets are way less, and so we have been through a number of storms while on big cruise ships. And as much fun as I have on them, and even though I continue to still be willing to go on cruises, that is just like the most sickening feeling. It's like morning sickness on steroids and it just won't go away until the, until everything is, has subsided. And it feels like you're going over these big whale speed bumps. But anyways, that's kind of my exotic form of travel. Yeah. I would love to do, um, still something in space would be cool or really high up in the atmosphere. I think that would be a lot of fun. Be kind of fun, I guess. I mean, once it once I know that it's really, really safe and you don't need a ton of engineering skills to survive up there, like what the astronauts, you know, just thinking about all the training they go through. But once it's very normalized and accessible to the common man, then I think I'll be excited about it. And I have been on a couple submarines with windows. One one in uh Waikiki Beach, and then one um once some, I guess it was maybe Maui or something. So it was kind of cool, like those little mini subs. That was a fun, fun experience to to kind of be under the water and see some cool stuff that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know about that. That kind of sounds a little scary to me. I don't like the idea of being trapped underwater. So that's yeah. Why. I, I like. Have you ever gone into like um? Will they have Luray Caverns in Virginia and some of those other caverns? There's some ones uh. I think there's some out uh, towards well there is one near Asheville um and there's some other ones you know Kentucky of course yeah. have the Carlsbad <laughs> caverns that was like the last I went I guess I went up there when I was in Asheville the one time I felt a little claustrophobic I normally don't get claustrophobic but there were a couple instances and maybe it was just because the large crowd and stuff that was down there it's like like feeling a little claustrophobic but I normally don't get that way yeah, I haven't been to the caverns for a while, but I do enjoy that. It's just the idea of a submarine that bothers me. And maybe it's because of some of the shows I've watched that deal with people being blown up inside of something. Okay, I got to bring this up. And it was a Mormon guy out in Utah. This is such a horrible story, but he was doing, what's it called? Not splunking, but he was- Yeah, splunking. Is, is, it, is that when you go through the little like holes in the- Oh, I don't know. I, may, I think maybe, things like base jumping. Oh, yeah. I, I'm mixing up my term. Um, Someone's probably yelling it at us. Yes, yes. But okay, yes. I bet we were talking about the the going through the little holes. Oh, the nutty, the nutty putty cave. Um, I'm trying to find his name. There's a film about it. The Last Descent. Yeah, it's about... um. The rescue attempt, the film is about the rescue attempt of John Edward Jones, who basically was caving, but he got stuck, you know, trying to go through like an 18 inch hole or something. He thought it was the Nutty Putty Cave, but it was something smaller and they couldn't get him out. And that just is like a nightmare. So if you want a good nightmare out there, if you're listening and you want to like, be more pessimistic and more nightmarish and frightened about life. It's a sad story. So my heart certainly goes out to his family. I, I know he left 
you know, he, I can't remember if his wife was pregnant at the time or, but it's just a sad story as well. But it just sounds like such a nightmare to be stuck and you can't move and they couldn't, they couldn't actually rescue him. Wow, that's really, yeah, that's really sad. I'm sorry this podcast Way is to taking like a dark- totally bring down my positive opening to the podcast. But I guess that prepares us for what we are here to discuss, uh, one of the things, which is elections in crisis. So I guess you might as well kick it off with a downer. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of this um, uh, really a, a, an aggressive attempt to... Uh, I don't know if overturns the right word, but to challenge the results of this election from Team Trump, it's very interesting to me because we haven't, I mean, we've had close elections in the past. Of course, 1960, John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon. Nixon probably won, but ended up conceding for the good of the election or the good of the country because uh, there was a lot of corruption that went on in Chicago. And ultimately, the state of Illinois was delivered uh, for John F. Kennedy on the basis of a lot of corruption in Chicago, but Nixon decided he didn't want to tear the country apart, conceded to Kennedy. Of course, Nixon makes a comeback for the presidency later, but um, it's just kind of fascinating to see. Um, and of course, the parties were much different than, I mean, we were much more of a united country in 1960 than we are now, but it's interesting to see this this play out in real time. Oh. Yeah, I mean, interesting is one way to put it. And I don't think any of us that have been paying attention, and I don't even think any American that's that's uh, been alive in 2020, had an illusion that this would be a smooth election season. Uh, I believe we, we've learned to brace ourselves. And so let me just say that my heart goes out to those young adults and teenagers that are coming of age during this time and this is the only kind of political environment they've seen and experienced because i mean wherever you come down on any of this uh when it comes to this particular election it's unmistakable that we have a really unhealthy political environment right now and um and it just hurts it breaks my heart to see that our kids are growing up with this as their their first taste of of all of this. And so, um, anyways, but when it comes to this particular election and the Trump administration's challenging of the results, you know, I know that there are people on both sides that continue to like send me messages with all of these YouTube videos, all of these Facebook posts, all of these theories as to what could have happened. Um, and, and I, so I get the concern and my, my advice and what I keep telling people is let's, let's let the courts work this out. I mean, if we believe in due process, we believe that, um, that we have a just system, then we really need to trust that right now. And, uh, you know, allow people to air their grievances, allow the Trump administration to make their case and trust the courts, which by the way, President Trump appointed over 200 federal judges to the courts during his four year this these past four years. Um, let them work through it, and uh, let's not let's not deride each other and completely like divide over where people stand on election fraud. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, Al, the Al Gore uh, George Bush race in 2000 was litigated all the way up to mid December, so we're only approaching mid November right now. Um, it, it's just fascinating to me to, to kind of watch all of this. And uh, I think one thing, uh, whether you hate like Donald Trump, or you want Trump to be the future of the Republican Party or even the future of conservatism, is he will be a force for a long time. I mean, he got 
uh, over 70 million votes. He got more votes than Barack Obama did in 2008, more votes than Obama got in 2012. Uh, of course, he is behind Joe Biden, obviously, uh, for total votes in this election. But it's just to me, it's I could see Trump making a comeback and kind of using this um, this whole controversy, whether if, it, you know, there's always talk about him starting a cable company to take Fox out and starting kind of a conservative news network, which would put him in a good position to have media behind him um, if he runs again. It would not shock me for Trump to run again because he's going to be a major political force and he has a huge backing and he has really fundamentally changed the Republican Party in some some good ways in the way he reached out to minorities. Of course, uh, record record support from his from Hispanic voters. Uh, Trump received. It's just kind of interesting to me to see a lot of the realignment going on in politics. The Republican Party is now uh, the party that is winning over the working class. Uh, you know, it's always been kind of tagged as the rich party. So whether you want to chalk it up to Trump's populism, whether you want to chalk it up to America first kind of policy, the, the the whole realignment is fascinating. And it's just interesting to see how this all shakes out going into, you know, future elections. But you're right, Brooke. I mean, it, I, that that's the bad taste. Uh, those are some of the positives, but the bad taste is just, you're right, the, the young people that are kind of seeing all the dysfunction, all of the, the fighting, all of the division. But, uh, you know, I always tell people, you know, you see all these calls for unity and stuff, and unity is just pie in the sky at this point because there's real divisions. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, politics is how that's worked out today. But there was an interesting piece I was reading over at Law and Liberty. It was just talking about the Senate and what the role of the Senate is. And it just had some good reforms, I think, it, to kind of take this nation forward where we're more of a republic and less of this democracy where everything hinges on a vote, you know, on a Thank on a, you. On a popular vote. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Every whether it's right. through the electoral system, which is a superior system, but everything just hinges on an election that, that we could actually have reforms, whether it's getting rid of the seventh 17th Amendment and making us more republic and making the states more of a voice than they are even now and kind of going back to what the founders uh, thought of this nation and that, yes, you have factions and yes, you have divisions, but they're they're not just set upon an identity or an identity uh, of people, but more about states and, and things of that nature. And yeah. you can go read the piece because it's really about the functioning role of the U.S. Senate and how we've we've gone from more of a republic style of government to a democracy and how that's bad. And we're seeing all that play out today. And um, it, it, it just becomes corrupted more when our society is corrupted. So um, we could talk all day about that. Yeah. But that, I think that's a good piece to read. Uh, it sounds like it. We should put that in the show notes for sure. And um, yeah, I think that that really gets, gets at the core of uh, functionally why there is so much dysfunction uh, is in part because so many people view us as a direct democracy and that stems from a an improper civics education which stems in part from a public school monopoly that has uh, not afforded children to, the ability to you know to have a more um competitive education but um yeah so I, I think that there's a case to be made and a good discussion to have around the differences between a republic and a democracy and why these uh, checks and these sort of firewalls between the masses or the majority 
why we why why our founders set up these firewalls and checks upon each other so that we wouldn't have mob rule like the French did, and um and there's something to be said about that, and we we ignore that at our own peril, and so um in the meantime it feels like for a lot of Americans everything hinges on the presidential election results. Um, thankfully though. Here in North Carolina, we have seen a lot more North Carolinians waking up and realizing that um, that they need to vote down the ballot too and finish their ballots uh, and realize that there's a lot at stake at the local levels. And so I was encouraged by those results over this election. Yeah, and I think overall, just secularism fuels the the um, fire for so much hinging on the elections as well. I mean, if you replace God as sort of an over it, it um, just as an overview in, in American life, American culture, Tocqueville talks about this, of course, in Democracy in America, what you end up with is people have to fill that void. And, and politics right now is the the void for a lot of people's lives, for a lot of people's directions, a lot of people's guidance. You know, I mean, just see, you saw some of the spontaneous rallies and this, I, I include this for the, the right and the left. I mean, to see people kneeling down in Central Park, um, just sort of overcome with emotion. I don't think it's, it's a bad thing to celebrate or to be happy about elections, but it was almost like they had some sort of religious revival experience or trans uh, figurative experience in their whole soul with the election in terms mm-hmm. of just, you know, it's just odd to me to see some of that. And I think we'll see more of it as we go forward, because like you said, everything is just so contingent on the, on the national election every four years. And I know Donald talks about this. Other people talk about this in the conservative movement. The importance, I think, of just moving so much of the power outside of Washington, D.C. and outside of the Beltway, I think is really central for this nation if we're going to ever kind of survive and be a republic and be a unified nation of laws. I think you do have to move so much of that power out of D.C. and let states uh, have more role as they're supposed to have under the Tenth Amendment, and and that's really, I think, a critical thing that has to happen. Not just cultural changes, but I think um, with cultural change, there has to be an acceptance that people will allow themselves to be governed more at the state and local level, and less at the federal level. And part of that takes a cultural change, and as well, I think the left has to, and maybe the right to some degree too, is. There, there are people that do not want any sort of dissent. They don't want people to dissent from them. You see this with the cancel culture. You see with these uh, trying to take people out, dox them, uh, ruin their livelihoods, take away their jobs, whether they supported Trump or, or some other candidate. And um, that's a, a very unhealthy road that we're going down. And it needs to stop, obviously. But I think it will continue because I think there's an element in this country that doesn't allow dissent. And whether it has something to do with their own conscience, I don't know. Uh, I think it does, but they don't want to hear any sort of dissent and dissent Mm -hmm. to them is violence. Yeah. Yeah. That's a scary place to be. And I would say that we need to first look within on that front and make sure that we are tolerant on a personal level of opposing viewpoints. And that, and tolerance does not mean consent or assent to someone else's perspective, but um, but just living through the past four years uh, of politics and and even before that, just all of the the battles and the bad faith arguments, um, we really need to be comfortable with on both sides p- 
people disagreeing with us um, and talking with them civilly and engaging with this, how the change has to begin, begin with us. And so anyways, I, I'm hoping that there will be a resurgence in, in civility at the very least. Uh, I don't foresee a president presidential figure ushering that agent. I think that that's no going to be, you know, that's going to have to be a cultural transformation and it can happen. It's happened in other times in history. Um, I think about in the 1800s when William Wilberforce from England, he was an English statesman, how uh, England was just in such dire straits culturally. Alcoholism was rampant. There was lots of poverty. It was during the Industrial Revolution. So there was a lot of uh, uncertainty for for many, many people. And, uh, you know, their culture reflected this sort of disconnected apathy toward others. And he said that one of his chief aims in life at that point in time became a reformation of manners is what he called it, but basically making goodness fashionable again, you know, making, um, making, helping others see that this is something that should be normalized once again in society and for us to love our fellow man. And as a result of that, that ushered in an abolition of the slave trade that uh, along with the great awakening, let me. Right. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, it, it was huge. John Wesley, uh, George Whitfield, other, uh, English reformers that came along, and there, you're right. There was a religious revival, and there was a a revival of caring about the other, the poor, of the people that were imprisoned, and, and it, it had it. I mean, the, the encouraging thing is um, all of those reforms came out of a Christian understanding and a Christian worldview. We're kind of losing that grip today, so that's what makes me a little bit more pessimistic about you know, kind of comparing our time now to that time now, and not to say that that can't happen again, but you know, just a sort of um, lack of understanding, I think, of a, a a more, at least, I mean, even a theistic worldview to some degree. But um, let's just on la- this last part of the election, let's look at, because we're hearing murmurings about people being upset that maybe Forrest uh, got a hatchet job here in this election too, which I hadn't really heard about, you know, for the first few days after this election. And now you just see this popping up whether it be on social media. I haven't really talked to too many people in my neighborhood because I try to like compare stuff that I hear on social media with uh, friends and neighbors in the neighborhood and they hadn't really caught on to this yet. But there are some people that think Dan Forrest um, won the governor's race and, and we're seeing more yeah. of that. Can, yeah. you, can you kind of comment on that? I have, I have been seeing that as well in the Civitas Kitty Hawk Club Facebook group. There's been some talks about this and uh, based on my understanding of this, because I I personally do not subscribe to this theory based on what I'm aware of with the elections, um, but people can feel free to disagree on this front. But uh, essentially they're saying, okay, so Trump won North Carolina, Tillis won North Carolina, Mark Robinson won the Lieutenant Governorship. So how the heck is Cooper still in office? Because people feel so viscerally about Cooper's orders lately and just his behaviors. Um, But my response has been North Carolina is a very purple state. And our polling for a long time has indicated that there's a contingent of about eight to 12 percent of registered voters that have voted for Trump and Cooper. Like this is just how some North Carolinians are voting because they uh, they appreciate Cooper's governorship at the state level and they love Trump at the federal. So I, I don't think there's anything amiss, but I've, I keep seeing that theory. Yeah. And uh, we know I, I was wrong about this. I predicted that Cooper would actually get less 
than 10% of Trump voters, because uh, it looked like in 2016, he got about 10%, maybe 11% of Trump voters across the state. So he may have actually done a little bit better than that this time. I haven't broken down the numbers. Andy might know that better than I than I do, but um, it seems like he may be improved upon those numbers. So you're right. I mean, there's a lot of ticket splitters out there. There's a history of ticket splitting in this state more so than some of the other states in this region and across the country. So it really is not that surprising. It's certainly something that could have happened, obviously. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating that people are kind of unwilling to look at that nuance. And I think that maybe just be part of the the ideological makeup of so many people. And uh, I do think there were, there were a lot of people, a lot less ticket splitters, but there seemed to be a lot of ticket splitters, at least in that one race. And, and I don't think that's necessarily um, that unusual in North Carolina. So it just... It's just interesting to me, and and and, I, and we've talked about this, I guess, maybe last week and a lot before. But um, you know, the, the distrust of institutions is an all time high, and that includes elections now. And we're in a ripe time for election reform. I guess that's one of the positives that could come uh, through challenging these elections is maybe we can have cleaner elections in the future. Because I have no doubt in these urban areas. I mean, I remember it when I lived down in South Mississippi, and I used to watch the New Orleans news. You'd see these statewide races. And, you know, New Orleans was always last to report. And it was always just seemed a little bit more than coincidental. And you hear these stories afterwards about people getting bused to different polling places and multiple mm-hmm. voters. And, and they would come and testify before the U.S. Senate, but nothing was really done about it. So I do think there's fraud out there. And I think we do sure, need to yeah. – we've got secretary of states that need to clean up their voting roles, um, at least the ones in the states that do uh, – they're tasked with that. That's a big thing that needs to happen. So I have no doubt that there's there's voter fraud out there. I don't know how massive it is. I don't think anybody knows for sure. But um, you know, it's it's a serious issue. And uh, you know, you you've got people in the media saying there, there's absolutely no fraud, and then you see names of people that died in the 1920s or 30s or the 1940s or died months ago who who voted, and it's it's all valid. So people to claim there's no voting fraud out there is just they're just you know, they just they're they're an ideologue too. You know, you've got ideologues on both sides, so um, you know. Yeah, there and, and so yeah, I think that it's wise to say at the moment right now. I I am a big proponent of measured responses and not running away with with uh, broad, extremely serious allegations without a lot of evidence. But I think that history has proven, and there are plenty of cases to prove that a voter and election fraud does occur. Uh, it, we only need to look as far back as North Carolina's ninth congressional district in 2018 for evidence of that. Um, but like our election policy analyst, Andy Jackson said at the moment, it does not appear that there is enough evidence that it would have tilted the election. So we will see again, we're like many, we're, we're like all of you where we're still waiting for all the facts to come out. And that's where I just urge people on both sides to keep the powder dry and, um, and you allow the courts uh, this to work through the courts. Um, and right, we have, a, we have courts for a reason. So yes, precisely. So that's, that's my thoughts. <laughs> so just quickly, I wrote a piece called, uh, North Carolina embraces a conservative agenda again. And the one of the just themes I wanted to put out there was while Cooper was reelected, we just talked about Cooper's reelection, he did not carry in legislative majorities with him. And I think that was one of the points I was trying to make. It was it was more of a minor point towards the end of the article, but I think it really is an important overarching theme is that 
Cooper really spent four years uh, with, with a lot of hostility towards Republican lawmakers. And the hostility was on both sides, of course. I mean, they're, they're different, different parties. So there was hostility on both sides. But he was unwilling to compromise on several issues. I mean, he came out and said, you know, it's going to be Medicaid expansion or nothing with the budgets. He would not uh, be flexible at all with uh, teacher raises. He wanted a certain number. Republicans came out with a certain number, and he wouldn't compromise. He would not compromise and give in uh, on those raises, and he just vetoed an entire budget on that. And so really he was betting that he was going to win on the Medicaid expansion issue and just on education overall that he was the better person to take the helm on education. It didn't work out that way for him. I mean, even though he did win the vote, it seems like a, North, a lot of North Carolinians are comfortable with divided government here in the state. They're, they're comfortable with uh, the Republican reforms that have led to uh, record-breaking tax cuts that have led to a, a vibrant business environment here in the state. So, um, you know, even while Cooper won, a lot of the issues he ran on, Brooke, he lost on those issues when it came to the mind of the voters. Indeed. Well, and to me, I could be overthinking this, but that sends a signal to me that uh, people aren't really hot on his policies. They they think that he's a decent enough executive and that he carry, he executes that role of government reasonably well. But when it comes to him legislating things by executive fiat, um, I, I, I think that they, it seems like trust a more uh, conservative legislature. And hey, I mean, North Carolina continues to improve uh, on the tax front, on the business front, on the education front. There's exciting days ahead. And I'm so excited about that. And yeah, divided government isn't such a bad thing. I'll tell you that much. It was a big night in North Carolina. If you take the Trump, you know, Trump winning the state, but uh, uh, looks like losing the election. It was a big night for Republicans in North Carolina, you take that governor's race out because even look, even in the attorney general's race, which they lost, was not supposed to be competitive at all. And Jim O'Neill almost knocked off Stein. And and the final votes haven't been tallied, but I think Stein has increased his lead a little bit, but he was up only like twelve or $13,000. I mean, I saw Stein ads almost more than Cooper ads on TV. I saw definitely saw more Josh Stein ads than uh, Trump ads uh, when I'd get on YouTube or I'm on some kind of streaming device. Way more Josh Stein ads. And, uh, of course, you know, he's he's pitched as a rising star in the state. He's either the next governor or the next United States senator. And he was almost knocked off by somebody who did not spend very much money. He was outspent 11 to 1. And to me, I just think that that race right there, even with the the GOP loss, just shows you how good of a night it really was uh, on election night for Republicans in North Carolina. And a lot of people didn't expect that because of the whole, the Bloomberg spending down here, all the money that was pouring in from out of state, all of the talk of a big blue wave in North Carolina, and it never materialized. And I just just found that to be interesting because you're right. I mean, even with the election of Cooper, that's kind of the main point. It just seemed like a lot of the things he was fighting for failed. So, Brooke, I want to end this with COVID Thanksgiving plans, because it looks like the government is ratcheting up uh, tighter mm-hmm. restrictions. I mean, I just saw, uh, not just in North Carolina, but you know how New Yorkers can be sometimes. Uh, you may know some people yes, from I New York. Yes, I married one. I know how yeah, they can be. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> they can have big mouths. And I say that with a com- I say that with, as a compliment, because sometimes you need you fighters. Say it in love. 
We say it in love. Well, you, sometimes you need people to stick up for the little guy. And, and New sure, Yorkers yeah. are, are sometimes good at that because they can run their mouth. And this is a compliment, so I don't want to get any hate mail. But they can run their mouth better than anybody in this country. And I'm seeing these videos of New Yorkers, whether it's de Blasio. Some of the language is not good, so I'm not encouraging people to go out there and necessarily watch them because I'm seeing a lot of words that I would never use in these videos. But they're telling off uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, Mayor de Blasio, and uh, they said they're not going to comply. Uh-huh. And a lot of these videos are going viral. You can see them on Twitter. I would imagine Facebook. I don't spend a lot of time there, but I imagine they're on Facebook too. Maybe Snap. I don't. I don't. I don't have a Snap account, so I don't know what goes on there. Um, but anyways, you TikTok can go watch these videos. <laughs> so I think there's just going to be a lot of pushback to some of these uh, these these Thanksgiving. Uh, lockdowns where you know governors are gonna are already pivoting. You can't have more than people ten people in the house. Um, what do you think, Brooke? And maybe we can talk about our own Thanksgiving plans and wrap this up. Yeah, so I, I think that people are pretty much they're they're done. They are ready to. I'm just speaking generally for the most part. I think people have resigned themselves to okay. If I haven't caught COVID yet, and I'm not regularly around especially vulnerable populations. I don't work in a nursing home. I don't work with uh, people with compromised immune systems. They're like, okay, I'm ready to develop some herd immunity here. And so when governors attempt to roll back uh, or walk back their freedoms that they've (laughs) allowed people to start experiencing, um, it's going to be bristled at inevitably. You can't just do that. and people are going to make their own decisions about their lives, as is the American way. Uh, it should always be done with thought of our neighbors and respect towards them. Uh, towards them. Um, but I, I think we're at the point where a lot of us, we know a vaccine's on its way. It could be April. Uh, and we believe that, you know, we've probably already been exposed to some degree, given how long COVID's been around now. So, um, you know, each person has to make that decision for themselves and make sure that they are making the best choice for their family. But our family's headed to Miami to go visit my husband's parents. Um, we haven't seen them for a number of years. It just has not worked out. And so we're really excited about that. We will, of course, be uh, mindful of everybody else's sensitivities related to COVID, but uh, their fa- his family said, come on down. So we're looking forward to seeing them. Yeah, my sister-in-law and her husband and her kids are going to come up to North Carolina and visit us. So that'll be fun. And this is what I've been saying. I totally agree, Brooke. Be safe. Make wise decisions. Make, make that, whether there's you know a pandemic going on or not, Keep try to do the best to keep your family safe. Um, you know, pray. But also, uh, you know, I've always felt through all of this, we've got to treat citizens like adults. And I thought, yes. even though Forrest lost this election, I thought one of the best lines in during that debate was, let's stop treating people like children. I, I know I'm not quoting them word for word, but he said, Governor, he's like, let's stop treating people like children. I mean, we're all responsible adults. We all have a duty to uh, be uh, kind-hearted and responsible to our neighbors to help protect them, prote- help protect our communities, whether it's in church, school, whatever social functions we're plugged into. But let's stop treating people like children. I mean, let's stop all the government mandates. Let's stop all this talk of compulsion uh, and mm-hmm. telling people what to do. And let's step up and, and be responsible. But we don't need the government to solve things. The government has, can't solve anything. We're 20 about to go over $30 trillion in debt in the next year or two, and the government can't solve anything. And, and look, I mean, they're not solving 
COVID. That's the, one of the most frustrating things I thought about this campaign was that, you know, we expect Donald Trump to magically wave his wand in uh, decreased COVID cases. And, and you can certainly, there's no problem if you want to criticize this president for his COVID response, but for him to sort of micromanage what's going on in states where people are going to go out and break rules and do this and that, and then blame the president of the United States for all that, I thought was just totally ridiculous. And um, so, yeah, be safe, but don't, 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 uh, don't bend your knee to this idea that you have to do every single little thing that the government tells you to do. Uh, You are a responsible adult. And you can go out and make wise decisions, but keep your neighbors in mind and keep people safe and and, and be a good citizen. But, uh, you know, I don't think that means, you know, taking every directive that the government tells you as gospel as well. Yeah, well, and it's yet another reminder to take take mind for about who you vote for, um, because those are the people, that, especially at the local level, that will be implementing a lot of these policies. And so, figure out which ones respect human agency uh, and balance that well with a, a care for our fellow man. And again, that's it's a personal responsibility thing, y'all. So, huh, so much that we covered today. We I gave them bonus. We gave them bonus time, Brooke. We gave them bonus time. You are welcome. This is our Thanksgiving gift to you, especially if the governor continues to issue mandates wherein we can't get in big groups anymore. So you'll have more time at home to listen to our podcast. You're welcome. (laughs) All right, you guys, we hope you have a wonderful week and we will talk to you again soon. Take care.